So last week, we looked at Luke's prologue, if you remember, the first four verses. Uh, and we, we saw in there, specifically verse four, Luke's purpose. And if you remember, it was so that Theophilus, as, and well, as well as those who are, who are reading it, such as us, may have certainty in what Theophilus has been taught or in our faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ, so we may have certainty. Last week, we also talked about how it's important for us to know what we believe, why we believe it, and be able to communicate it effectively. And then we heard, uh, kind of took a look in the mirror and listened to some harsher criticism or some constructive criticism in the fact of modern American Christianity being okay with and accepting ignorance and possibly some mediocrity when it comes to this, when it comes to knowing what we believe, why we believe it, and being able to communicate effectively. This passage today, which I'm pretty excited to get into, picks this up. Luke picks up this theme of being certain. And it answers the question, how can we be certain? How can we know? Which I'm pumped because Luke does it. He, he answers this question, the, his purpose of having certainty of what we believe, of our faith. And then the first thing he gets to is how can we be certain? And he, he works this in by also recording at the very beginning, opening up this account of Jesus the Messiah. So I'm pumped. And today, uh, I'm going to split this message up in four parts. And uh, it will descend as it, it, each part takes less time. So the first part is going to take the most time. It's going to get less and less and less. But that doesn't mean they're, they're, they're less than or less important. But I'm really excited. So the first part here is let's look at the text. So if you have not yet already, open up to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. So here we go. Luke starts out, he says, In the days of Herod, king of Judea. Let me stop there. So, uh, so Herod, right? In the days of Herod. This first part we see here, Luke the historian. If you remember back in the prologue, Luke says he's been following these things for some time. He's been compiling sources, different, different eyewitness accounts. And he's telling us that, that this is happening during the days of Herod. And we will see this throughout the gospel. Luke continues to root this account of Jesus Christ in history. This is happening during Tiberius. This is happening during Herod. This is happening here. This happened, this happened, this happened. Because this is history. Our faith is reasonable. We saw that in the prologue. And Luke continues that. He is a historian. So the days of Herod. Let me stop there first. Uh, Again, I should say, Herod, he was generous. In a, a famine in 25 BC, there was a famine in the time and he actually took gold from his palace, melted it down, and used it to buy food for the poor. In fact, at this time, he was rebuilding and expanding the Jewish temple. He even does this during Jesus' lifetime. This, or his project continues, I should say. So he is a generous man, but he's also ruthless and vicious, paranoid and jealous. He'll eventually kill his wife. He'll eventually kill his wife's brother, his wife's mother, I believe, and then he'll kill several of his sons. And if you recall, this is Herod the Great, he'll also kill lots of young boys because he hears of a man, king of the Jews, being born, Jesus. And so he's both generous and ruthless, but we get this, this is during the time, in the days of Herod. Luke continues, he says, there was a priest named Zechariah. 
a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife and the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. And so Luke sets this up. He sets up this setting, talking about Zechariah and Elizabeth. Zechariah, that very name, means remembered by Yahweh. And we'll see that through this account. Remembered by Yahweh. Uh, remember that. We get here his, his, uh, his profession. He's a priest. And so he works at the temple, which we see is the setting of this account. Keep in mind here, and this will play into what happens here. At this time, there's about 18,000 priests. 18,000. So there's a ton of priests. And they divide it up. As you see here, there's actually 24 divisions. And Zechariah, he is in the, the division of Ab Abijah. I know, I keep on saying that weird. Um, Abijah was the least prestigious. So you've got Zechariah in the least prestigious subdivision of priests. And because of these subdivisions, and there's so many, two times a year for about a week, they will serve at the temple. It's their rotation. It's their time. And we see this happen here uh, with, with Zechariah. But a little more information about Zechariah Luke gives us. He says that he and his wife Elizabeth are righteous before God. He's righteous before God. And the only way you can be righteous is through faith in Christ. And just as Abraham, Genesis 15, 6, that he, he believed God, it was counted to him as righteousness, so too Zechariah and Elizabeth believed and trusted in the promise of the coming Messiah, and that is why they're righteous. But it doesn't just end there. Their righteousness, their, their faith is lived out as you see in obedience, as it says, they he walk walking blamelessly in the commandments. But then we see the the conflict within this account is that they're childless, they don't have any kids, they're barren. And in that time in Jewish culture, being barren, not having kids, was seen as a divine judgment, as almost a curse. But Luke purposely shows that that is not the case here because he says that they're righteous in God's eyes, that they walk blamelessly. And so he makes a point of saying that is not why they're barren. It's not a divine judgment because they're righteous before God. So it's clear it's a physical issue they have. What's interesting, as, as I was looking into just this idea of being barren, there's a lot of couples in our biblical history who are barren. Abraham and Sarah, Isaac and Rebekah, Jacob and Rachel, Samson's mom, Samuel's mom, Hannah. They were all barren. They all didn't have kids. They were, they were struggling with them. I thought it was very interesting that all three patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, all three of them, their wife was barren. And, and that's ironic because the whole promise was there could be a descendants, a, a, a crazy amount of descendants, and they were barren. They were childless. Until God stepped in. But we see here with Zechariah and Elizabeth. They're righteous before God, but they had no kids. She was barren. And then it adds as almost that's not enough. Like an added dagger. And she was advanced in years. She was old. She was past the time of conception. And so there's kind of the setting we get. 
Zechariah, a priest, and Elizabeth, they're old, they're childless, but they're righteous before God. And there's the setting, and then we continue. Verse 8, now, while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by a lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. So as I just said here, there's so many priests, and so they divide it up, and then each division of priests have an opportunity about twice a year to serve at the temple. But that's still a massive, 18,000 divided by 24, that's still a massive amount of priests. But they're at this. And so they have to figure out, so who gets to do these things? Who gets to go into the temple? Who gets to go into the Holy of Holies? And so they cast lots, which was a mechanical way to determine the will of God, right? So they do this. And the lot falls on Zechariah to go in and to burn incense. Let me stop us there. Most priests were able to do this, burn incense, no more than twice in a lifetime, once in a lifetime, or many, not at all. And so this opportunity that Zechariah has is a highlight of his career as a priest. This is a huge deal that he's the one going in to burn incense. Continuing, verse 10, And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. Uh, let, me, let me back up here. So they, they usually, at the temple, there's two sacrifices uh, each day. For the, at the Jewish temple in the, in the morning and then in the afternoon, evening. And they usually burnt the incense at roughly this time. Most likely, this time, what we're, what we're referring to here is in the evening because there's this multitude of people outside. And this multitude would consist of the priests who weren't picked, who were part of the subdivision that were serving the temple, but also would be the common people. Because at this time of burning incense was a time of prayer. It was a time of prayer for the nation, national prayer, but also personal prayer. And so there's people outside. They're waiting because this is a big deal. This is literally their relationship with God, how they commune with God. And so they're outside praying. And so Zechariah, most likely thrilled that he was chosen to go do this. He goes in and then verse 11, And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. Okay, okay, let me back up. Let me add one more other thing. When they go into there, the priest goes into the temple, they did it as quick as they could. They did it as quick as they could. The reasoning for that is because they're literally going into the presence of God, and if they sin, they'd be struck dead. In fact, on the Day of Atonement, when the high priest goes into the Holy of Holies, in the, into the temple, they put bells on his garments so that those outside could hear him moving. And when they didn't hear the bell moving or the bells ringing, he's dead. He sinned. And so this is how serious it is. And so they did it very quick. Now, let's jump into this. So an angel appears. An angel appears at the, it says specifically to the right, uh, on the right side of the altar of incense. And this is interesting. This is not a vision. This is physical. A physical angel was there. In this incense, it's a physical symbol of prayer to God. And that's why at this time of burning incense, a lot of people prayed outside. But on the side of the altar of incense, the angel appeared as if as an answer to prayer. This angel appearing is not expected on two levels. Number one, who expects 
an angel to appear. That's number one, that this is completely unexpected. Remember, this is the highlight of Zechariah's career. He goes in, this is big enough a deal already, and then an angel appears. Number two, and this is huge, it has been at that point in history 400 years since God had spoken to his people. 400 years. The last time God spoke was to the prophet Malachi. This is the first time in 400 years. And God speaks. We even haven't been a nation, the, the U.S., for 400 years. And it's been 400 years. Yes, I am right now doing math quick to make sure that I was right in saying that about the U.S. But it's been 400 years. And an angel speaks the first time. And we read how Zechariah responds. He says, And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and he fear fell upon him. As was common whenever there was a heavenly body, like God appearing or an angel appearing. As we saw, as we looked at uh, the resurrection, when the angels appeared, they were frightened. The, the guards, they, they were terrified. And they were knocked unconscious. And so Zechariah is in great anxiety because he sees this angel. But let's see. So this angel speaks. Verse 13. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord's people, or to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Let me break this down. So the angel appears. Zechariah is terrified, as we would all be. And the first thing the angel says is, do not be afraid. This being the most frequent command in all of scripture, do not be afraid. He's bringing good news. He's bringing good news. He says, your prayer has been answered. And let's pause there for a second. They're advanced in years. Hope's already gone. Hope is gone. So most likely this prayer was an old prayer. Maybe years ago. A prayer that they may have thought that God didn't listen or didn't hear. Or he just didn't care. But yet God somehow filed it away. God hears it. He cares and he's answering. God is answering the prayer. So the, the angel tells him, your prayer has been answered. How your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you shall call his name John. John meaning Yahweh is gracious. Yahweh is gracious. And how gracious is he? This couple who are old, who they thought hope was dead, God hears their prayer from years ago, possibly, and answers with a son. And listen, and the rest of this is what they describe of John, which the big picture, he is setting up the front runner for the Messiah. Their personal good news of a son sets up national good news of the Messiah, the one coming before the Messiah. So let's break this down. Here we go. He says, you guys will be, joy there'll be joy, gladness. Yep, you personally, but many will rejoice at his birth. Why? Angel tells us. 
He'll be great before the Lord. And this is an Old Testament way to say that he's going to have a specific and important plan in God's plan and in God's kingdom in a special way. Goes on. He says, and he must not drink wine or strong drink. And that might be like, okay, that doesn't really mean much to me. This is what it means. It's one of three requirements for the Nazarite vow. And that might sound familiar to you. The Nazarite vow, because I believe Samson had took the Nazarite vow and Samuel had the Nazarite vow. You think of the Old Testament. The three conditions was not cutting your hair, not drinking strong wine, and then not touching uh, a dead carcass. This is from Numbers um, 6. So it's a special vow. But what we see here when the angel says this, it's in a specific allusion to Samuel. Because Samuel was in the same boat. His mom was barren until God answered the prayer. And then Samuel had the Nazarite vow. This is an allusion to Samuel. Samuel was Israel's first prophet. Now you have John, same thing. He's not supposed to have strong drink uh, or wine. And he has a mom that was barren before God stepped in. John is going to be a great prophet, just like Samuel. And then if that was not enough, the angel continues. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And filled with the Holy Spirit, affirming God's power and giftedness. And remember, it's been 400 years since God had spoken. That God has done a work, a very visible, manifested work amongst people. 400 years, and now they hear that John. Zechariah sees an angel, the angel says, your your son John is going to be full of the Holy Spirit even from the womb. And you hear God's initiation. It's God who's doing this. And you hear allusion, you might have heard this, from Jeremiah. When Jeremiah writes in chapter 1, Now the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. Again, proclaiming, this son of yours, John, is going to be a quite the prophet. He's going to be a great man, a great prophet. He alludes to Samuel. He alludes to Jeremiah. Then he says what he's going to do. Uh, he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb, verse 16. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And what do we hear in there? Turn, turn. Same thing we're referring to as repentance, turning. And what was John's main theme of his message? Repent. Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. It is near. And then the angel says this. And he will go before him. In the spirit and power of Elijah. I want to make a couple points here. Number one. This is clearly referring to prophecy. Um, if you have your Bible, open up to Malachi chapter 5. If not, you can just listen to me. Malachi chapter 5. It's the last book in the Old Testament. Chapter 5, verse 5 says this. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. So Elijah was supposed to come before the Messiah, the prophet Elijah. And it's clear, and Jesus emphasizes this, that John is that Elijah. He's coming in the spirit and power of Elijah. This is John, the front runner. Yes, it's awesome who John is, but it's even more that him. John means the Messiah is coming. He's the front runner, and here comes the Messiah. So there's excitement. 
Let me, and this is the second point I want to say about this. It's interesting that he says, in the spirit and power of Elijah. Because Elijah, the power of Elijah, we know he did many miracles. It's recorded that he done a lot of miracles. A lot of the most, um, the big ones we hear about, like the fire came down on Mount Carmel, that was Elijah. And so there's many miracles. There's not one in scripture that John the Baptist did any miracles. Not one. So the power of Elijah, that the, the, the angel is saying about John, wasn't in miracles, but was in the power of his message. It was in the power of God's word that John spoke. Because it's God's word that contains the power to change one's heart, to turn from sin to God, to repent. It's in God's message that there's power. It's in his, in his word. The angel continues, he'll turn the hearts of fathers to the children. And you can just hear Malachi, that that prophecy. And this is super exciting because this is over 400 years ago and this is becoming true. And you hear the allusion to Malachi. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and they'll disobedient to the wisdom of the just. And there's the sense of salvation, this hope. And he ends it with to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Preparing the way for the Messiah. If you have your hand in Malachi, go to chapter 3, verse 1. He says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. John is coming. Awesome. Really good news because after him comes the Messiah. The Messiah is coming. Isaiah chapter 40, which John uses to refer to himself. He says, a voice cries, Isaiah writes, in the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. So John is coming. Personal good news to Zechariah and Elizabeth that they have a son, but national, and we see now human, mankind, good news that John is coming. Why is that important? Because John means the Messiah is coming. And so this is incredibly good news. How does Zechariah respond? Verse 18. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I'm an old man. And my wife is advanced in many years. Advanced in years. How shall I know this? Zechariah says. And honestly, at first glance, this question sounds pretty innocent compared to how Mary questions the same angel uh, just later in the, the chapter. But God knows the heart. And God responds a lot different to Mary as he does to Zechariah. Because we know that God knows the heart. He knows the motive, what's behind this. As Matthew Henry writes, this was not a humble petition for the confirming of his faith, but a peevish objection against what was said to, to, to him as altogether incredible, as if he should say, I can never be made to believe this. There was doubt behind Zechariah's question. I'm old. My wife is old. He could only look at the obstacles. He didn't think about about God, that with God all things are possible. And that is the question. How shall I know this? How can I be certain? And so Luke says he writes for the purpose that you can be certain of what you've been taught. You can be certain of your faith, of the gospel, the, the account of Christ. I write so you can be certain. And then we see while he's opening up the account of Jesus, we have this question 
that question of, well, how can I be certain? And Zechariah mouths this to the angel. And so the angel's response, which is what we're going to look at here, it will sit on that, the last of the message, is the same response to you and me. Verse 19, and the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. So Gabriel's answer to Zechariah, I stand in the presence of God. Gabriel's authority comes from God. And it's his word that I'm speaking to you, Zechariah. An angel, that means messenger. An angel is one who, a messenger from God, who comes with a message of God. Here in this account, and in the account of angels, the focus isn't really on the angel. It's on what the, the message of the angel, because that message is the word from God. The angel heightens this, the importance of the message, no question. But it is the message of the messenger that is the focus here, is the word of God. And the thing is, we have the word of God. In, we have the word of God in our Bibles. We open our Bible, there's the word of God. We don't need an angel. In fact, if you remember in Galatians, at the very beginning of the, our study in Galatians, Paul says, even if an angel comes and says something different than what we have in God's word, let him be damned, let him be cursed. And so we see that it is the message of God that's important here. And so Gabriel, so, so, so Zachariah says, well, how can I know, Gabriel? I'm old, my wife is old, how can I know? And Gabriel basically says, I just told you, Zachariah, I just told you, the very living God says this. That is why you can know, because God has spoken it. So how can we be certain of our faith? Because God has spoken it. Then we see Gabriel. He institutes kind of the short-term discipline that Zechariah would be unable to speak. Zechariah did not believe God's word, therefore he won't be able to speak a word. He didn't believe the word of God given through the angel. And it's in the short-term discipline, as we'll see, I think, in chapter 2, Zechariah will come to learn to, to trust and believe God's word. And look at how it ends here. He says, yep, you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled. Even despite your disbelief, Zechariah, these will be fulfilled. And then the, this account closes here, verse 21. And the people were waiting for Zechariah. And they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And that's why I mentioned in the beginning that they did this quick. Because they didn't want to die. They didn't want to sin, even the smallest sin, and die. So they did this quick. And so the people all started like, what is going on with Zechariah? Verse 22. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them. Let me stop there again. It is customary, and rabbinic tradition says this, that when the, the priest comes out, he would proclaim the ironic, ironic blessing found in Numbers, uh, where it says, like, may God's face shine upon you. That blessing, it's, it was tradition that the, the priest would say this as he comes out of the temple. And so this multitude is like, the, the people are like, what is taking him so long that he comes out, and they're expecting this, 
And he can't speak at all. Instead, he starts signing, it says. But then it says the people, they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. They knew something happened in there. Something made him take so long, and now he can't even speak. Something happened. It says he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And then almost anticlimactic, verse 23. And when his time of service was ended, he went home. Let's close this. Verse 24. And after these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived the fulfillment of God's word spoken through the messenger of the angel is becoming fulfilled. Elizabeth conceived and for five months she kept herself hidden. Why did she do this? No idea. No idea why. And there's people say a lot of different reasons. Uh, potentially, in a practical level, she may have hit herself because she may have told people, hey, I'm pregnant. This happened to my to my husband. There was an angel counter. But who would really believe her? She's so she's so advanced in years. She's past the time of conception. So most likely, possibly, she stayed hidden just until she started showing. So it's obvious that she's pregnant. Either way, but then she says this. She kept herself hidden, verse 25, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. And there again shows, once again, um, the stigma that went with barrenness in the Jewish culture. This idea that was divine judgment. But now God has looked upon and he has answered. God's word being fulfilled, even despite Zechariah's disbelief and doubt. God's word is certain. That's part one of the message. Part two. And as I said, these things will get shorter and shorter. But follow with me here. So Luke's purpose in all of this is that you may be certain in your faith. You may be certain in what we know of Christ in the gospel. You may be certain. And the first question, the first thing that comes out in Luke's account, in the opening of, of the front row of the Messiah, is the question, well, how can I know? How can I be certain? You said the purpose is to be certain. Well, how can I be certain? And the answer that Gabriel gives to Zechariah is the same answer to us. You can be certain because God has spoken. You can be certain because God has said it. Our statement of faith, we as a church family, our statement of faith says this. We believe that the Bible is God's holy word. That it was written by men divinely inspired, that it was inerrant in the original writings, and that it has supreme authority in all matters of faith and practice. And we've got scriptures to point this to. But we see that here as well. We as a church believe that we can know, we can be certain, because God has spoken, his word says it. And this is important to go over because in our, our, our postmodern world, our culture, they say this. You say you can be certain by your faith. Well, Billy, how, how you, you sure you can be certain? Like, how do you really know that there's a God? How you, can you be certain that there's life after death? You've never been. You've never died. Like, how can you be certain, Alex? So we must ask this. We must, we must be certain about this because we want to know what we believe, why we believe it, and be able to communicate it effectively to others. So we must understand this. And an objection with this that comes up frequently is this idea of the Matrix. Now I say that, and I know that some of us may have never seen that movie, but I'm assuming that you've at least heard that, that figure speech or that illustration within conversation, the idea that 
well, how do you know that you're not in the matrix, that you're not in some virtual reality where it seems so real that you don't even know it's not real? Or if you want to take it a different way, um, like in a dream, a dream that seems so real, you have no idea that you're in a dream until you wake up. And so there's this objection against our certainty in our faith. Well, Alex, how can you be certain of all this if, for all you know, you're in a dream? How can you be certain? And I bring this up because it, it does come up frequently, and it is an objection to what we're saying. And we, but we want to know and seek to know what we believe, why we believe it, and then be able to communicate that effectively. And here's my point in saying all this, and I'll show this, and please follow with me, because I think it's pretty glorious, because it's just showing us our faith is reasonable. Without God, without God, a person can be certain of nothing. Without God, a person can be certain of nothing. Follow this. And it's interesting because it anchors the, the certainty that Luke says. So with that objection in mind, that, hey, how do you know you're not in a dream? How do you know that you're not in the matrix? How can you be certain? With that in mind, it follows that in order to be certain about anything, you must be certain about everything. You must know everything. Because if you know everything, then you would know for sure that you're not in a dream or the matrix or whatever. It's, it's an objection. It may seem funny to you, but this is really what comes out in a lot of people's heart. And it's important because we want to know what we believe, why we believe it, and then communicate it effectively. And so with, we can only be certain about anything if we know everything. Or, and see if you can follow this, or know, you know exactly where I'm going with this. Or if someone who knows everything has revealed the truth to you. And that is what we believe, that the one who knows everything, God, the living God, the creator, King Jesus, who knows everything, revealed himself and truth to us. And that is why we can be certain. So unlike our culture's worldview, who can't know, can't be certain about anything, we can be certain because the living God who knows everything has told us, has spoken, has spoken the truth, and we can be certain because of him. So how can I be certain that there's a creator? How can I be certain that after we die, we don't just simply cease living? How can I be certain? Because God has spoken. How can I know that when when my believing family and friends die, how do I know I'll see them again? Because God's word tells me. How can I know that God will be with me and provide for our needs as we seek his kingdom because God's word says it. The very word of God enables us to be certain of our faith. Now, follow with me. I'm getting excited. I'm rolling my leaves. My sleeves, I should say. Uh, you might be saying, Alex, that sounds a little bit like circular reasoning, doesn't it? That you're trying to prove the certainty of God's word by pointing to the fact that God's spoken it, which is claimed in the word of God. Is that circular reasoning, Alex? And I say to you, yes. Follow this, though. All arguments for absolute or ultimate authority must have a circular reasoning argument in order to prove the authority of that ultimate authority. Because if that ultimate authority looks to something else to claim its authority, then it's no longer an ultimate authority because it's subordinate to a different authority. If you didn't follow with that, let me say this. If we are trying to show the validity of God's word as the ultimate authority, 
and we do that by pointing to a different authority, then God's word is no longer the ultimate authority because it's become subordinate to that other authority. And like I said, all examples of ultimate authority trying to, to show its, its authority, its, its validation of that, always has a circular reasoning. Let me give you an example. And please follow with this because we'll, this will make sense at the end. If you claim reason as your ultimate authority, and I ask you why, essentially your argument will boil down to because it sounds reasonable. If your ultimate authority is logic, and I ask you why, essentially your reasoning will boil down to because it's logically consistent. If your ultimate authority is what you sense, what you can sense through your senses, that's the ultimate authority, and I ask you why, you will ultimately have to boil it down to essentially um, defending it with, well, this is what I can sense, this is what I can know. And then even if you claim that there's no ultimate authority, and I ask you why, your argument will need to essentially be based on the idea that you have a lack of knowledge, and therefore you don't know that there isn't any kind of authority, or that there is no absolute authority. So my point being is this, is that in any kind of uh, argument or proof for an ultimate authority, there will always be a circular reasoning. Now, if I lost you there, let me bring you back in here. Let's continue on with this idea of the Bible being ultimate authority, that this is why we can be certain. I'm sweating. I hope you're sweating because this is super exciting. Last week, I gave some reason, reasons for proof of God's word, if you remember. We looked at the unprecedented internal coherence. We looked at external evidences and, and much more. We looked at the proof of validation of the Bible. But the Bible itself, within itself, brings effective persuasion. This is often referred to the Bible as being self-authenticating. This means that within itself, it bears witness to its own truthfulness. How does it do that? Let me give you just two, two uh, reasons. Number one is its beauty and majestic vision. Its beauty and majestic vision. I know you can't raise your hand. But has, have, have you read any parts of the Book of Mormon, of the Quran, or, or any other kind of holy book? Um, I've, read, I've, I've read different parts of the Quran and the Book of Mormon, and it is nothing like the Bible. The Bible gives, yes, propositional truth and facts, but it does it in this high vision, this high life-giving story. And that's one thing that bears a witness to its truthfulness. And the second one is this, is the Bible's power and efficacy. What I mean is this. When we open the Bible and we read it, it convicts us, it comforts us, it encourages us, it reassures us, it breaks down our pride or any sense of it, it guides us, it challenges us, it produces hope. In Hebrews 4, the writer says, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Isaiah writes, For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven, and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. It is powerful. God's word works in us. 
Let me stop there. This is not basing our faith on experience, as I said we should not do last week. Rather, it's basing our faith on proof, rooted in history and facts and evidence, yet being persuaded to faith by the self-witness of Scripture. Now, coupled with this self-authenticating nature of the Bible, please follow with me, is this persuasion from the Holy Spirit. One Christian document says this, that it talks about the, the many evidences we have outside of Scripture. Like I said, it's um, internal coherence, all these external evidences. And then it writes this, Yet withstanding our full persuasion and assurance of the infallible truth and divine authority thereof is from the inward work of the Holy Spirit, bearing witness by and with the word in our hearts. It is the Holy Spirit that bears witness of the, whole, of the truthfulness of the Bible. And why is this important? Listen to this. One writer says this. Human beings, and we can all agree with this. Ask your wife if you disagree. Or ask your husband. Ask your parents. Human beings are adept at rejecting objective evidence when it does not conform or conform to their prejudice. On matter how clear or compelling the evidence may be. Some people will not be persuaded by all the proof in the world because they are not truly open to the evidence. Listen to this quote from R.C. Sproul, the late R.C. Sproul. It's a little longer, but I think we definitely can, can understand this. He says this, My experience as an apologist and minister has shown me that the real reason most people reject Christianity is not for a lack of evidence. The proof from external sources regarding the truth of the biblical account is too overwhelming. No, the real issue is a moral one. The person not reconciled to God in Christ and living in disobedience does not want Scripture's claim that God has a full and final claim on his life to be true. He wants to get rid of the book as fast as he can. This is where the internal witness of the Spirit comes in. Only those whom the God, the Holy Spirit, has regenerated will submit to Scripture as his inherent and infallible word. The Holy Spirit does not give us a new argument for the truth of the Bible, but he confirms in our hearts the truth of Scripture as it is displayed in both the internal marks of Scripture and the external marks of Scripture. Objective proofs for the Bible are many and compelling, which we saw last week. But they cannot force people to believe against their wills. Sinners are only persuaded to receive the Bible as God's word as the Holy Spirit changes their hearts and assures them that they can trust and rely on what Scripture says. So what is that saying? Our faith is reasonable, as we said last week. It's built on evidence. It's built on history. There is proof. Our faith is reasonable. But... On our own, we will not believe that. As Paul says, 1 Corinthians 2.14, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. We won't. We're blinded by sin. We're blinded by Satan himself, it says in 1 Corinthians. Without an outside actor being the Holy Spirit, we will not believe it. There's proof. Our faith is reasonable, but we will not be persuaded unto faith unless the Holy Spirit works. Uh, Wayne Groom writes, apart from the work of the Spirit of God, a person will not receive spiritual truths, and in particular will not receive or accept truth that the words of Scripture are in fact the words of God. So all that to say, in the second part, all of it to say, we can be certain of our faith because our Creator, the living God, has spoken. 
We cannot be certain without God because in order to be certain about anything, we have to be certain about everything or we need to have received truth from the one who knows everything, which is exactly what we have. And we see that the self-witness of the Bible expresses and bears witness that it is truth and then we are totally unable. There's proof, but we're unable to be persuaded to faith until the Holy Spirit works. Does the Bible stand up to any measure of authenticity? Yes, far more than any other ancient work. Homer's Gilead, every, all these different things. Homer's Iliad, I should say, not Gilead, stands far above. It's also attested by its own self-authenticating nature and the Holy Spirit's persuasion. Now, part three, what does that mean for you? If I lost you, let me bring you in right now. Hit that person next to you on the couch. Bring it in right here. What does this mean? We look at Zechariah, Elizabeth, the angel coming, John being spoken. Zechariah can't speak. And then Elizabeth conceding. Then we looked at, you can't be certain without God speaking. What does this mean is this. The call is then to trust God's word. God's word is sufficient. Second Timothy, all scripture is breathed out by God. Breathe out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So how? How can you be certain that he will provide in the midst of a financial trouble? How can you be certain that he will comfort you in loneliness? How can you be certain that he will meet you in the depth of your shame? How can you be certain that there are only two genders? How can you be certain that there's male headship in marriage? How can you be certain how to raise your children? Because God has spoken in his word. That's how you can be certain. You encounter God when you open up his word. When you look at what God has revealed to the prophets, what God has embodied in Jesus Christ, and what he has entrusted to the apostle, and then written and recorded in the Bible. As uh, Justin Peter says, if you want to hear God speak, open your Bible and read if you want to hear God speak audibly, open your Bible and read your Bible out loud. Kind of snarky, but that's if that's the fact. If you want to hear God speak, open your Bible, because that's literally the words breathed out by God. I encourage you to immerse yourself in God's word this week. If you want a stronger faith, go to God's word. Go to God's word, and as you dive into it, it'll dive into you. Romans 10, 17. Faith comes from hearing and hearing from the word of Christ. If you want to know God, go to where God has revealed himself, his word. If you want the spirit to work, go to God's word where the, the spirit says he inspired and he works. So the summary here is that God's word is sufficient. We can be certain because God has spoken. And the call is to believe and trust God's word. And that brings us to part four, which will be very quick, but is not insignificant whatsoever, is this. In the midst, and I want you to see this, in the very midst of this glorious, this national good news. This glorious news that the Messiah is coming, which is the, the pinnacle of human history. Jesus the Messiah is coming. In the midst of this, God hears a prayer from an old couple who's insignificant, from an insignificant division of the priest. He hears this old prayer from years, maybe even decades ago. He hears it. He looks upon them and he answers. He heard the prayer of pain. He's involved in the lives of his children. Even in the midst of this glorious message, he hears this couple's pain. 
Zechariah and Elizabeth were old and they were hopeless. And they're beyond hope. They're, they're old. They're, we're, point, we're past the point of having kids. Possibly, they didn't want hope because they're so used to the pain of disappointment. They don't want hope. But God hears it and he gives hope. He gives life in his son, but gives life to their life. So let me sum this all up, all four parts. Number one is this. Prophecies are fulfilled in John. He's the front runner of the Messiah. He is coming. It sets it up. Here comes Jesus, the Messiah. And this will set up us for next week, God willing. Then we see that we can know. John, Luke says, hey, I write so you can be certain of what you believe, of the faith, of, of, of Jesus Christ. How can we know? Which is mouth by Zechariah in the beginning here. Gabriel answers, I just told you. God has spoken. That's why you can know. That's why you can be certain. And we cannot know anything unless we know everything or we know someone who knows everything and has revealed himself to us. I said that very fast. Rewind it. It's recorded. God's word is sufficient. And in the midst of this mighty fulfillment, God hears a seemingly insignificant couple, an older couple, hears an old prayer that may have been from years ago. He hears it. He looks upon them and he answers them. God's word is powerful. The Holy Spirit uses it. Unleash it by reading it, listening to it, studying it, listening to someone teach it, thinking upon it, praying in it, and obeying it. Please, please, let's close today with prayer. Father, thank you, Lord, that you just don't tell us that we can't be certain, but you tell us why, and it's because you have spoken. God, may we take the very Bible that a lot of us have in our hands right now in our living rooms, wherever we're at, Lord, God, help us to stand on this. Even when we don't feel it, when we don't have any kind of experience, we know that this is your word. The Bible itself self-authenticates itself and the Holy Spirit works and we trust that. This is your word. May we stand on it. Lord, may we, may we go to work with the principles of your word. May we parent with the principles of your word. May we live with the principles of your word. Lord, thank you, God. Thank you so much, Lord. Give us humility as we listen to your word. Lord, we ask this all in your son's name. Amen.